Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Tim Smith about his article, Olfactory Cleft Mucus Inflammatory Proteins in Chronic Rhinosinusitis, a Case Control Study. This edition of Scope It Out is brought to you by Carl Storrs. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Stores video platforms. Please visit www.carlstoresnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Hello and welcome to another edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, Dr. David Petker, and I'm very happy today to have with me Editor-in-Chief of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Professor of Otolaryngology at the Oregon Health and Sciences University, Dr. Tim Smith. Tim, welcome. Well, thank you, David. I, I really appreciate the, the invitation. I've not been on this side of the conversation before, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, this should be interesting. Full disclosure, this is uh, really just a bribe to uh, hope you erase those gambling debts from the Rose Bowl game last year. But, you know, again, if so... Great. If not, it's no big deal. I got used to you not paying your debts a long time ago, Jason. Long time ago. So don't you worry. Okay, good, good. So I'm glad we have an understanding there. Uh-huh. So today I want to talk to you about olfactory cleft mucus inflammatory proteins in chronic rhinosinusitis, a case control study. Kind of a different topic from the quality of life work that uh, that you're best known for. How did this come about? How did you start getting interested in inflammatory proteins in the mucus? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, when I started in the research in this realm and, you know, started writing my first grant, my first major grant, which would have been writing it back around, say, 2002, remember, we hadn't even at that stage gathered much in the way of multi-institutional outcomes of sinus surgery. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't carefully collected demographic information, disease severity information, validated measures of quality of life of olfaction, at that time using the smell identification test, the 40-item test was the Mm -hmm. first olfactory outcome that I utilized back then. And the whole idea behind that research was there has to be some combination of factors here that we can look at preoperatively in a patient to determine who is a good candidate for sinus surgery and who is a not-so-good candidate for sinus surgery. And that was the whole idea behind that grant. Well, as several years go by, we recognize that using, you know, the best data that we could gather prospectively from multiple institutions and great biostatistical analyses, we really couldn't make much in the way of a predictive model that was useful. And the conclusions have been that the disease has so much heterogeneity associated with it 
that we're putting this group of a thousand patients who probably have, I don't know, tens of different disease processes. We're lumping it all under the umbrella of chronic rhinosinusitis. We're grossly breaking it up into two phenotypes, chronic mm-hmm. rhinosinusitis with polyposis and chronic rhinosinusitis without polyposis. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of there was a lot of uh, lack of precision, frankly, in categorizing our patients. And you and I both know, the, the listeners know, that over time, we've really become much more interested in categorizing patients not just based on whether they have polyps or not or whether they have asthma or not, but what, in fact, is going on at the molecular level in the mucosa, in the mucosal surfaces, in the mucus that sits on those mucosal surfaces. And can that give us more information uh, about how we might predict outcomes? So it's really been practically a 20-year evolution from what I now refer to as caveman, cavewoman thinking about chronic rhinosinusitis. We used to say, well, you either have polyps or you don't. And yeah. while while that's not obsolete, it is a gross oversimplification of this disease process. I think we, we all, that's become more and more apparent to us over time. And I do think with this type of work where we're looking specifically at what's going on in the mucus and in the mucus membrane at a molecular level, I think that is what is going to revolutionize the way we categorize our patients. And once we can precisely categorize them into these little subgroups uh, under this big umbrella, then we can begin I think, to predict their outcomes better and determine, well, mm-hmm. who's better? You know, the stakes have never been higher, David. Now we have surgery, which is expensive. We have biologics, which are expensive. We need to determine who best fits into which treatment paradigm so mm-hmm. that we can optimize outcomes in the most cost-efficient way possible. That's really what we're up to here. So I hope that the listeners and the readers of this work don't get too caught up with okay, they're in the olfactory cleft. I don't really care what's going on in the olfactory cleft. I've got patients to see in my clinic, and they've got real symptoms and real findings in their sinuses. Well, as it turns out, what we learned about what's going on in the olfactory cleft really helps us understand this disease process much more broadly. So that's generally where this comes from and and I think where we're headed in the field. So kind of a natural evolution, you know, so you started with certain types of patient-reported outcomes measures. You've, you've maximized the information that we can glean from that, and so kind of the natural progression of this type of research, the next step looking more at the, at the mucus and the specific inflammatory proteins on those different groups. That's right, and we can still combine this with other factors that we previously measured to perhaps be able to cluster these patients into groups using demographics, using phenotype, and using this type of information we can gather from the mucosa. I think 
one of our hurdles along the way has been that in order to get information from the mucosal linings, we had previously been relegated to biopsying the mucosa, which right. is sounds like an easy thing to do. Well, why aren't we just biopsying patients in the clinic and whatnot? But you and I both know that requires not only some expertise, but it requires some probably some pain and suffering, some morbidity associated with it. So we've relegated collection of this data to people who are going to the operating room right. for their sinus disease. And we're gathering, we were biopsying ethmoid mucosa and then analyzing it. We started out looking at eosinophils and then we got much more granular with regard to what's going on in that membrane. I think the more we understand about what specifically is occurring within this mucous membrane, the better we're going to understand the pathophysiology of the disease process and the better we're going to be able to treat patients and, and improve our outcomes. So give us Cliff's notes on what you did and what you found. Yeah. And then I've got some more specific questions for you about the patient enrollment and some of the results, but give us kind of the 30,000-foot view initially. Previously, our analyses had looked at mucosa that had been biopsied into the, in the OR. So what it, that relegates us to a group of patients who are undergoing surgery for their chronic inflammatory disease. That now biases our findings to a group of patients who are pretty severely affected by this disease process, right? And we really didn't have any idea what's going on in the mucosa of control subjects. I mean, to some degree, we had some idea because during transphenoidal surgery for pituitary in people who didn't have sinus disease, we took biopsies there and we did some comparisons. Mm -hmm. Well, in this study, we've utilized uh, filter paper, more or less, that you can place endoscopically guided in the clinic, uh, and it's relatively easy to do in the clinic, certainly in the operating room, but we can place this wherever you want to place it. I mean, people have put it in the middle meatus to measure cytokines in the middle meatus. We put it in the olfactory cleft specifically, and we left it there to uh, absorb mucus from that site, from the olfactory cleft. We leave it there for a few minutes, we take it out, we spin it down, and then uh, do our analyses of what is contained within, you know, the fluids that we've collected. So it's non-invasive, and I think you and I, the listeners, can envision a time where in the future we take a sponge like this and we put it in the patient's nose in the clinic as part of their workup, part of yeah. their diagnostic workup of the disease process. And then we send that to the lab to have our patient essentially endotyped. This mm -hmm. is a patient with type, primarily type 2 inflammation where IL-5 and IL-13 are playing very important roles. Well, then we can say to ourselves, oh, okay, so this is type 2 inflammation. The patient has polyps phenotypically, but we can start to see that if we were going to use a biologic, now we can begin to select a specific biologic that makes sense for this particular patient. Right, right. Let yeah. me interrupt you for just a second. So 
Do you think that the inflammatory process, and, and perhaps this is a bit of a tangent, if it is, feel free to redirect me, but do you think the inflammatory proteins from the olfactory cleft are representative of inflammatory proteins throughout the nasal cavity, or are they independent and specific to the olfactory epithelium? And if so, how does that factor into the endotyping these patients if it's more of a respiratory epithelium disorder? Right, exactly. And so I guess the question is, fundamentally, is the mucus in the olfactory cleft different from the mucus in the middle meatus? Some authors have studied that with some varying results, but there was at least one really good study that was done. It comes out of Asia. I'm forgetting the first author to it, but they looked in the anterior nasal cavity and they looked in the olfactory cleft, and they found that there was a different proteome within those areas, so Mm -hmm. different proteins manifesting in those areas. Now, the point we make in our paper is that we're not sure if it correlates exactly with what's going on in the middle meatus, but you and I and those who have treated this disease long-term would probably bet it's more similar than not. Mm-hmm. And even though we're sampling mucus from the olfactory cleft, how do we know that that mucus wasn't made somewhere else and transported right. to the olfactory cleft, right? So right. there's still a lot of work to be done And that's really getting into the details of this type of research. But there's still a lot of work to be done. But the point of the matter is that we do want to know what's going on in that olfactory cleft specifically because, of course, loss of sense of smell is one of the cardinal features of this disease process. It also happens to be, at least in my hands, it's the most finicky of all of the cardinal symptoms with regard to its propensity to recover after our treatments. It's the least predictable. It's often the most frustrating. Sometimes we look in the olfactory cleft and we see edema. We can even see polyps coming out of the olfactory cleft. And we think to ourselves, oh, okay, the olfactory cleft here is blocked by these polyps and the odorant molecules, they just can't get to the nerves. And so that patient has a conductive anosmia. And if we get in there and we simply remove those polyps, we should be able to return olfaction to that area. But you and I both know that that's not necessarily what what occurs or what transpires. There are other cases where you look at the olfactory cleft by CT scan or by endoscopy in the OR. It looks clean. There's no edema, there's no opacification, and yet the patient has significant hyposmia or anosmia. Mm -hmm. So what is going on in that particular case relative to the case of of polyps? A lot more questions than answers in this particular realm, I think. I found it interesting that it was fairly unique in this paper compared to a lot of the different studies. What I'm getting at is you, you had a control group in this one, and and you alluded to it that most of the papers that are in the literature currently use individuals or take samples from individuals that have surgery, whether it be surgery for sinusitis or surgery for like a pituitary tumor and, and no evidence of sinusitis, but it, we're still limited in that. And usually the control groups, if 
existent are pretty small. You had a pretty robust control group, and so I'm curious how you found th- these individuals. And I know what it wrote in the paper, but but I'm interested more in your experience. One of the things that you had mentioned before is that that we're limited in, in who we can enroll. I have been very frustrated over the years trying to enroll patients in any type of study, even if they know the tissue is going to go to the pathologist and not be used and has no value to them. I'll still get turned down as far as patients consenting to participate. So how did you get 75 or so control patients that would be willing to come in and let you, you know, put filter paper in their nose? You have to incentivize them, right? Some of these folks are people who are generally just interested in contributing somehow to the advancement of science, and this sounds like a non-invasive thing, so they're willing to do that, but that's not that many people, and that's why you and I have struggled over the years with, with control group issues. When you've got funding to do a study, then you can begin to start to offer incentive, financial incentive to patients even, to undergo this type of a procedure so that you can collect that kind of control data. That's where the incentive primarily comes from. And so it said in the paper that you used advertisements. Yeah. Just, I'd love to see one of those advertisements. Uh, we could probably get you one of those. These were just posted. <laughs> these were just kind of posted things on bulletin boards and whatnot. Really? Uh, so you probably are getting a larger group of healthcare providers or people who work in healthcare who become the control group in a study like this. But sometimes patients' families will see these things in the clinic rooms. They'll see, oh, you're doing that, and I'd be willing to participate because I want my family member to benefit from the research that you all are doing. And And I don't have any kind of sinus problem. So it comes from things like that. And over time, of course, whenever you're enrolling a substantial control group like that, it just takes many, many months and sometimes years to pull that off. Now, one of the things you don't mention, or at least I couldn't appreciate, the distribution of the patients from the different institutions. And so not just the case patients, but also the control patients. Is there any risk of having the vast majority of the people from, say, Denver and the mucus and healthy individuals in Denver, how can you say that that's the same as the mucus found in South Carolina? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's another point where we don't know if environment in particular impacts either the findings in the control group or the findings in the studied group here. I don't know, David. It's mm-hmm. it's another layer, I guess, of questions. Probably those aren't the critical questions for us to be asking right now in our research, but at some point that will become probably an important question to be asking. This is still very much a nascent field. Not much written on this, not much data collected on this, but it is increasing And it's increasing rapidly. The types of studies that are coming out like this, I think, are really increasing rapidly. So what should the average rhinologist take away from this data? If somebody's listening to this or someone's reading through the paper and there's a lot of CCs and ILs in that paper, it's confusing. What would you want somebody to take away from that? I think a few overarching themes. One is that we think, me and my co-authors, think 
that this is what the future looks like with regard to treating our patients, and that is we're going to somehow be collecting more information about what's going on at a molecular, at a protein level in the mucus, at least, and perhaps the mucosa as well. That would be a large paradigm shift with regard to how we do business now. So I think that's one thing. I think this is a look at what we all might be doing in the future in the clinic, in our patients, so that we can categorize them appropriately. I think the second point that I would want them to take away is understanding the heterogeneity of these disease processes that we have grossly categorized into CRS with polyps and CRS without polyps, and that there is so much overlap between those two groups that in this day and age of specific biologics that can be offered to a patient, that previous categorization that we've used for decades now is becoming obsolete, and and I think probably will become obsolete at some point, because if you look at the discussion in the paper, it talks about how a substantial proportion of patients who do not have evidence of polyps have type 2 inflammation that looks almost exactly like chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. Mm -hmm. And right now, a good example is that the biologics that are approved for the management of chronic rhinosinusitis are all approved for one indication, and that's chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. When you look at research like this, there's probably... 15 or 20% of patients, maybe more, with chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyposis that would respond to those types of medications just as well. Now, conversely... Based on the hypothesis that the inflammatory proteins in the mucus. That's right. There's, To my knowledge, there's no data showing that the inflammatory protein array in the mucus is predictive of responding to things like dupilumab or anything like that. Is that correct, or is that am I wrong on that? Uh, there's a little bit coming out. There's been some work um, recently published in IFAR. I think it was Naweed Chowdhury and Justin Turner looking at IL-17 in particular. Uh, this is off the top of my head, but folks could look this reference up. But they looked at IL-17 and found that it was predictive of surgical outcomes or the need for revision surgery, for instance. So we're just starting to see those types of reports come out. Now, the paper we're discussing right now, our paper, is a cross-sectional study. So we do right. not have outcomes here. and We can't make prediction based on what we've more or less tried to describe what's going on with these proteins. But we will, I think, move to a point where we can use these inflammatory proteins, the cytokines, the interleukins, we can use these to help us predict who's going to respond to therapy. It's quite interesting. If you look at the dupilumab studies, their data, and then you look at our data here, the proportion of folks with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis who are responding to dupilumab in their studies, when you look at the responder analysis, you'll see that 
the proportion matches up with the proportion of folks that have high IL-13 levels. Mm-hmm. Now, what I was going to say is the converse of this is that there is a substantial proportion of patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis who actually do not have classic type 2 inflammatory proteins. So you might hypothesize that those patients are not going to respond to the biologics that address those particular cytokines. And in fact, we found that somewhere around a third of our patients with polyposis have lower levels of those types of cytokines. And interestingly, somewhere around 60% or 65% of patients with nasal polyposis respond to dipilimab in a substantial way. It makes you realize that it's not all about what we see phenotypically. We really have to get into what's going on at the molecular level in order to categorize these patients appropriately and then select a treatment that would make the most sense for that patient population. Now, there may be another thing to take from this is you may be treating a patient with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, and you may do your surgery and your post-op topical steroid regimen, they may have a SNOT-22 score of 5 when they come back to clinic, which is a great SNOT-22 score, right? But guess what that 5 is? It's olfaction. They've lost their sense of smell. Now, understanding what is going on in the olfactory cleft milieu may help us select the next most appropriate therapy. Perhaps that's a patient who deserves a biologic to manage their olfaction or their olfactory loss related to the chronic inflammatory disease process, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I've often thought that it would be great if we could have a blood work or, or, or blood test, or this is it would be even better and easier to help us categorize these patients and really stratify them through a treatment algorithm. So we knew which patients responded to therapy X and which responded to therapy Y and which biologic was the more appropriate. Money's not going to get more plentiful and insurance companies aren't going to be more generous with this type of thing. I think they've been remarkably generous so far, honestly, as far as approving the dupilumab and things. But if we could swab them find out which one has the highest likelihood of benefiting, that would be tremendous. And the cost savings would be huge, not to mention the the frustration and, and quality of life improvement and things. So I think this is very, very exciting stuff. Well, I think you said it better than I was able to explain it, David. Maybe I'm too close to this stuff, but that's exactly where I think this field is headed. And And to me, it makes a tremendous amount of sense that that's exactly where this field would go. You brought up blood tests, and of course, we've tried to look at peripheral eosinophil levels, for instance, and IgE levels to try to understand who has type 2 inflammation, polyp-generating inflammation in their nose and sinus, and who doesn't. And it doesn't always correlate. It's not that sensitive or specific. It can be helpful, but not always. So in this case, we're kind of going to the source, which is the sinus mucosa itself and the mucus on that mucosa, 
and we're able to collect it in a non-invasive way. I guess it's invasive in that we're going in the nostril with an endoscope, but we're not having to biopsy or take tissue out of the patient's nose. And so Mm -hmm. some huge advantages moving forward. There was a time five or seven years ago when you and I would have had this discussion, I would have said to you, yeah, I think there will be a time in the future where we're going to biopsy all of these people's mucosa in the clinic before we do surgery so that we can understand these things. So now we can do it with a sponge placed. And again, you can really place these sponges where you want to place them to collect the mucus that you'd like to collect. And we have a lot to understand about that, but you can see the potential utility of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Tim, this is great stuff. I mean, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us and really exciting stuff. And so I hope that our listeners can appreciate how exciting this is and and how cutting edge this is. Before I let you go, I've got a trivia question for you. And I know you're a big fan of The Office. Yes. Huge fan. Huge fan. All right. Steve Carell of The Office. Yeah. He's a member of a media dubbed, quote-unquote, group, along with other actors such as Jack Black, Ben Stiller, Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell, and the Wilson brothers, Owen and and Luke Wilson. Your question is, what is the name of that group? Oh, can I Google this? Nope. Okay. I'm trying to think of something Dwight would say to Michael in in a situation (laughs) where he has no idea what the answer is, but he wants to pretend like he does know what the answer is. Uh-huh. but I don't, I don't know, David. I don't the, know. So the the perfect response for that is when I tell you, you say, "Oh, that's what you meant." <laughs> I get that from the residents all the time. So the answer is the frat pack. Uh huh. And what frat is this? Pack. Yeah, frat. F R A T. Kind of like the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra, then the Brat Pack with the actors in the eighties, Ali yeah. Sheedy and, and some of those actor, actors. Actors. This and is why frat? Why why frat? Well, according to the International Movie Database website where I got this information, it has to do with the uh, old school movie and how they made their own frat in that movie. Okay, frat pack. Okay, frat pack. I'll try that yep. on my. I'll try that on my 13 year old son. He and I have spent the pandemic. He just turned 13, and so I said, "Okay, you're old enough to watch The Office now." And so we started watching it, and then I thought to myself. Wait, you're not nearly old enough to watch this. (laughs) Son, you're a man now. It's time for you to start watching The Office. That's great. (laughs) Thank you so much, David. If I could say one thing before I go, I just want to thank my co-authors and co-collaborators who are all over the country and their authors on this study. Of course, their contribution I cannot highlight enough. Rod Schlosser is a co-first author on this study with me in particular, so I want to give him all the accolades as well. But thank you so much for taking the time, David, and I hope I didn't geek out too much on the olfactory mucus. It was a little bit, but I think I reeled you back in enough. So, All right, Tim, thanks very much for your time. Thank you to the listener. You can find Dr. Smith and uh, Schlosser's paper along with all the other newly published papers on the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology website. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.